Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Vagabond Actors, where we talk about acting and actors' lives and everything in between. I am, as always, Brian Casp. I'm coming to you live on tape from Prague, the Czech Republic. Joining me, as always, are our actors and acting teachers and coaches, Gary Condes, who's joining us from London. Hello, Gary. Hello, Brian. How are we doing this week? Pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. And as always, our third co-host, Andrea Helene from Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm doing very well. Thank you. All right. And joining us today, our special guest for this episode is Dan Johnson, who is a filmmaker and is a connoisseur, let's say, of show reels and demo reels. So welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Great. So we are going to spend probably a lot of time this episode talking about show reels and what makes a good show reel. Dan, uh, we do want to also get into your story a little bit and what brought you to filmmaking and your history. But before we get into that, we always like to check in and see what kind of uh, experiences we've been having this past week in our business and our development as artists. So does anyone want to hit it off with a business or artistic experience? Well, we're super busy down here because we're on more restrictions, not quite as severe as in the UK, but things are a little bit quiet. But there's a good deal of planning happening for events and visits in the spring and the summer. So I'm working on plans for a workshop, an intensive workshop this spring, hopefully. And I taught a class, a Meisner class via Zoom with the Schauspielerschule uh, Zerboni. We love them and know mm-hmm. them. And that was a lot of fun um, to watch them do indoors and activities and repetition. And I enjoyed it very much. And I think I'll be doing more of that with them starting very soon. Was that in English or German or Spanish or mixed or what? Great question. It was in German. And ever so often I have to do my jerglish. You know, if there's just not quite the right word in German, and then I have to take it over to English, and then I, I pop back into German. But, yeah, it's challenging for me. I mean, my German is very good, but it is my second language, so I have to do some thinking. And because I've taught in English all of these years, you know, how I think about concepts is in English when I'm teaching. So I'm kind of making it up on the spot. I don't know how people who are teaching Meisner in German full time, how they're describing the concepts, you know, what their word choices are. So I have no idea how I fit into the canon, so to speak, of what they're already receiving in terms of instruction. Yeah, It may be that I have a completely different vocabulary, and hopefully, if that's the case, it makes sense and they're getting something out of it. But I think it was a very positive experience. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I have experience yeah. of teaching in German-speaking Switzerland in the northern part. And um, mm. do you notice any differences, particularly with the sort of repetition exercise and the activities and knots and where the words are the least important thing in a way, how the language differs or any idiosyncrasies or any differences? I do actually have a number of theories about it, especially after watching German students over the years. I think that, number one, there's a tendency for them to discuss within the exercise. Mm. They are definitely dealing with getting over being polite. If there's an observation made of behavior, there's a tendency to react with something more like, oh, I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. I'll try and change my behavior (laughs) instead of like, 
oh, you think I'm being rude? You know, like that more sort of gut first impression. There's a degree of thinking that goes on. And I do personally, I've had this conversation with a couple other teachers over the years. I do think it is connected to the culture and to the language. And I gave them the example because they do all speak some degree of English. I said, look, think about it in English a little bit. You know, we put the verb right at the start. You know, German is structured so that your verb is often at the very end of the sentence. And I think in this kind of work, that makes it a little bit challenging because there is a tendency to sort of put all of those qualifiers or descriptive verbs first. And then sometimes the most important thing comes at the end. And I think it is related in some way to how they receive the impulses as they're performing and their ability to get it out. So I said, don't be afraid of like being super simple in your expressiveness. I mean, think about it in English. I want this. I need this. I see it. I hate it. I resent it. Right. Whereas in German, it's like resent, hate. It loses some of the power of those action words, which we talked about in our last podcast. So I do definitely believe specific challenges that are related to the language and not just the culture. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That happens when I've taught non-native English speakers as well here. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because a lot of times if you have those students working in English, even if they're not so fluent in English, they might actually be a little bit more free. And then when Mm -hmm. they switch into their native language, all of the social pressure that come with speaking that language and how rude or polite you're supposed to be kind of come into the fore. So very interesting. There's sometimes a little bit more freedom when people are speaking their non-native language because mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. be like, well, this doesn't count. Yeah. 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 I was thinking if I'm, if I'm going to be teaching them moving forward more regularly, we try a day where we just have them perform in English and we see how they feel about the difference. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, all these different cultures as well just have variations on it. I know, you know, when I've ever taught Spanish and see, I wonder how you get on with the Spanish in uh, Mallorca, although it might be different because it's a bit of an island, but who knows? I don't have to teach the Spanish to express themselves. It's just to basically, <laughs> you see they're like them. Roman candles. They're just, they're just sounding off everywhere. <laughs> and like, no, this person's right in front of you, give it to them. Yeah, yeah. whatever. I'm fucking really angry and I'm going to give it to the whole world. You know, it's, uh, um, so it's really important. That's something that happens all over the Mediterranean, though. That's a Mediterranean thing. Whether you're at the north or the south or the east of the Mediterranean, you're very expressive. It must have something to do with the heat. Um, Gary, what about you? Have you had some kind of artistic experience? Yeah, I've kicked off my courses, which has been great, launched those and sort of getting into the admin side. But this feature film that I worked on at the end of last year, I've been sort of working with the editor, who was also the director, refining the trailer and doing some back and forth work on that because I helped write it and I played the lead in it. Yeah, so doing that kind of work and also getting proposals together and submissions together for film festivals. So kind of doing a lot of the uh, bureaucratic work on that, which is a bit different. You know, it's not my favorite thing, but we have to do it. So hopefully we may get to a point where the submissions are for ones that happen later on in the summer and further on into the autumn and beginning of next year. So hopefully they may be live and in person, but we'll see. But we're still going to do it anyway. So yeah, it's interesting just revisiting something you shot about a year ago, you know, and mm. kind of going, oh, hindsight, what a beautiful thing that is. Or what a, <laughs> really, or what a so easy to go the other way. Yeah, or what a destructive thing it is. But yeah. yeah. Nice. What about you? I have something that happened 
and this is, hmm, we've talked about this a little bit before. When you audition for a part that you think, hey, this is going to be a pretty cool part if I book this part. This is going to be pretty good. And then maybe you aren't really in the running for that part anymore. And then maybe they have you audition for another part that might be a little bit smaller. And maybe you're not in the running for that part anymore either. And then maybe they don't call you for a little while. And then they call you and say, you got a role in this project and it's a no-name character. And that's what we're going to give you. And so I don't think I'm alone in this at all, but I'm at this nexus where I feel like I don't want to do those roles anymore, the no-name roles, because I feel like I've spent almost 20 years doing those kind of roles and I've, <laughs> and I've, done, I've done other roles too, but I'd like to you know, only be considered for that. But at the same time, work is work. And I do feel like I should be grateful just to be getting the opportunity to be on a set at all especially these days. And so I was kind of struggling with that yesterday when the call came and they said, you're getting one day. And so that's something that I'd like to talk about. Maybe this is not exactly the, the right forum to really dissect it, but basically, like, at what point do you say, okay, I'm not taking those roles anymore? And I'm t I have talked about this before. Me saying this triggers all kinds of things in, in myself, but saying, is it a thing where you're doomed to not move up, you know, and it, which is, which is complete bullshit of, for me to say, because I know that I have a career where I have had the larger parts as well. Uh, so it's maybe just this kind of neurotic, insecure artist thing that's happening. But that's something that I thought would be interesting to talk about. I, I'd love to hear actually all three of your thoughts about it. I'll say one thing, which is, I know you brought me on here to talk about showreels, but I feel like everything... No, but you're a director. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Too. Well, I feel like everything you've just said is not just one episode. It's like a series in itself. Um, yeah. And I think it, it does happen to actors probably more than anyone, but I think even writers and directors, we progress, but the progression's often never as fast as we anticipate. Or you have one big project and then you think, this is it. This is going to lead to this next thing. And then, as you say, like you get offered a tiny role or something much less than you was hoping for. And it's, um, yeah. it's that thing. It's not just the work and you're here to work. It's how you feel about yourself and how you feel about your career. It's yeah. Complex. You know? I think it's ubiquitous mm. in the artistic field. Yeah. And we feel, see, now I'm answering my own little thing, but, <laughs> but we feel like it should be linear. Yeah. And mm. it's not. You know, I've realized something for myself that I think about a year ago, annoyingly just before COVID, and I've not been able to really do what I'm about to say, but I came to the realization that I feel like there's two kind of sides to the career. One is going up the ladder, getting, you know, better reputation, better projects, more money. And then there's this opposite thing, which is, am I being creative? What feels creative to me? Mm. So for example, if that one line in a show or no name character, if there's something about it like if you're like oh i've never played a cop before and i get to be a cop or oh it, it films in hawaii you know do you know what i mean like if there's yeah. something in it that excites you that's where i'm coming from at the moment what i'm trying to do is if something challenges me or excites me or of course there's like if it pays a bill but yeah just trying to stay connected with how i feel about the project you know it's very personal as well i mean i've always had a bit of a rule of thumb you know if it's a small part but it is shooting in bali where i've never been before and i'm going to be there for a week i might just do it purely for that not so much the work 
it may pay a lot and therefore you go well you know what i could do with that money right now and, and you know it might be one of just a few ingredients or all of the ingredients together there's all these criteria that can add up either individually or together to whether you do it but i think the main thing for me would be can i do anything with this part I would agree with Gary. And I also think just one other thought, Brian, and I I really do understand what you're expressing here, because I think we all recognize these kind of moments. But if it's an opportunity to be on a professional set right now, especially with people whom you would like to work with, being on set will serve you much better than declining the role. You don't always know what the learning is going to be, what the lesson is going to be in pursuing something, and it will reveal itself to you. So maybe the lesson is this part right now, and maybe it's something that's going to happen on set or an observation or a relationship that you create there, because I know that there's something I will pick up, whether just in mm. observation or something more concrete that will bring me to my next piece of learning. Yes, I agree. Well, I've already taken it. I mean, it's not a question of should I take it or not, but I just think it's the question that I think is in a lot of our hearts when we maybe mm-hmm. don't get the opportunity that we had hoped for, or we thought we should get, yeah. which happens all the time. This won't be the last time time. this happens to me. Mm. And I asked that same casting director years ago, I mean, when should you stop taking smaller roles? And she said, when you don't have time to take them because you're so busy with other things. Yeah. You know, and it's a non-creative maybe way of looking at it. But, you know, if you have the time to do it, why not do it? You know? Sure. Better go on and sit on a set and have those opportunities and meet those people and get paid Mm -hmm. for it than to sit and gripe about how you're not getting opportunities. That's for Mm -hmm. sure. And in the same way uh, as castings, it's when you've come out, you've made your decision, you either turned it down or you've accepted it. In your case, you've accepted it. It's like, that's it. You've made your decision. Go and enjoy it and move on. And, (laughs) you know, like castings, you've done your thing. Be prepared. Bring the most out of it in, you know, every respect, not just in front of camera and get the most out of it. Yeah. Good. I love it. Okay. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters. Your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Let's move on from me because it's now become too much for me to handle. (laughs) Uh, 
Dan, what have you had something this past week? Do you know it's funny when you guys first were talking about it? I was thinking, oh, I've done I've done nothing this week, and then as I thought about it, I'm like, no, I've done numerous things, but I don't seem to have conscious awareness of. I had a interesting Zoom meeting a couple of days ago about directing a short film that's going to be set and filmed on Zoom as like a little lockdown project, and I've not wanted to do that at all recently, just because whenever someone tells me they've got something on zoom they want me to watch i've had no interest i don't know how you guys feel about it but i've just struggled to pay attention to a play that's on zoom or a short film or something like that but um this was a film that was written by someone else which is unique for me because pretty much all of my career i've everything i've directed i've written So I think that what's intrigued me about this short film is it feels almost like a kind of safe way to test out directing someone else's material in a way that if it doesn't work out, if it sucks, I can be like, well, it was a Zoom experiment. It was a Zoom one. It's fine. Zoom experiment in lockdown. And if it works out really well, then I will have learned that I enjoy directing other people's material more than I thought. So I had that meeting and um, was sort of going back and forth with a few bits on the script. And aside from that, I've been dealing with trying to get a book cover design for a book that I wrote. And apart from that, just binge watching stuff, you know, but that's about it. And so we found each other through your activity on Twitter. Yes. And so you're fairly active and keeping fairly creative by connecting with various people through that medium. So that must keep you somewhat busy in terms of finding projects or helping people. I think you posted about looking for some people to work with through Twitter. Yeah, Twitter has been fantastic throughout all of this sort of COVID experience. When it all first happened and everyone around the world was getting locked down, I sort of noticed that there was a few different things happening. There was some people that were so sort of anxiety ridden and stressed by it, worrying about the industry and what am I going to do and how am I going to this and all that kind of thing. And then there was people in similar positions to me that maybe have like showreel companies or some kind of service they offer who were flying around being like, okay, I'm doing 50% off, I'm doing online Zoom things. And I kind of felt that I didn't want to use this time to try and, you know, demand money out of people. So I I kind of went the other way and tried to, on the one hand, be more generous with the sort of experience that I have and the knowledge over many years, and also just get to know people. I was doing a thing a few times called a virtual coffee, where I would just get five creatives that I'd never met before from Twitter and we would chat for 30 minutes on Zoom and just talk about anything, talk about anything in the world. It didn't even have to be filmmaking. And, you know, on the one hand, it was selfless. It was just fun and staying connected. But then there was also, I feel like you do better networking. You make better connections when you're not trying to sell someone something. You know, it's more genuine. It's much more genuine. Yeah. So I feel like even like, you know, something like this, doing this podcast, it has come from just sort of engaging with you guys over what's probably been months informally. And at some point, you know, you guys have, oh, maybe we'll chat to Dan and and there's a familiarity with us. So this is what the sort of lockdown has been all about for me is, yeah. is building new connections and just trying to do things that, and also for me, creatively, don't get me wrong, I've not been able to go out and make, say, short films in the way I normally would or could, But that being said, having these limitations put upon us, for me, feels creative. That's when you're like, okay, I have to do everything from my living room. What can I do? Or, okay, I can't film. 
but I have Twitter. What can I do? And for me, that brings about all sorts of ideas. It's kind of like the advice you guys were giving me a few mm-hmm. minutes ago, which is you got something that maybe could suck, mm. right? And so how can you make that experience creative and worthwhile? Because this is the time that you have. Definitely. Right. And especially with COVID, you can't change that. You can only change how you're interacting with the world. Now, Andrea, did you submit something to Dan? One of the monologue things, was that to him? No, I think I sent him my previous show reel. Okay. Yeah, I was working on some monologue. show reels, Dan, (laughs) to critique. And you had very good critiques of our show. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, Dan had a post that went really viral where you would put together sort of a 24-hour challenge for yourself, right? People sent you their show reel and you took a day and watched a hundred, more than a hundred, and gave feedback on all of them, right? Yeah. How many was it in the end? Do you know what? I mean, I'd have to, it was, I'd say it was hundreds. It was nonstop. It was, <laughs> it was funny how it happened because I put a tweet out in the morning and I was like, okay, guys, today I'm going to watch shows. I'm going to give feedback. And the first hour, I think one person responded and I was like, okay, this was pointless. No one cares. And then suddenly... <laughs> You know, the right person retweets it and suddenly it was um, it was just nonstop. But I just got into this rhythm, you know, that kind of flow state where I literally, I don't even know if I had food that day. I just kind of stared at the screen and watched reels nonstop and responded. To, and I remember sometime late at night, I got to the, I was like, please guys, stop sending show reels because I was, I didn't say that, but I was feeling that because I was just exhausted and I managed to respond to all of them. And I was like, shut my laptop down, went to bed because I was like, if more come in, it'll be too much. But interestingly, although that sort of spread quite near and far, it was actually the next day I wrote an article yes. called, I watched hundreds of show reels yesterday. Here's what I learned. And it yeah. that blog that seemed to really connect with people. So my question for you is, it's a great blog and it's gotten deservedly a lot of traction and um, mm. maybe you can sort of review some of the points. And there's a couple questions I have for you about that. Do you want to share some more details about what you observed in watching these hundreds of showreels? And by the way, may I ask, were most of them from the UK or uh, were they from all over? It was all over. I mean, it was definitely the UK for the most part, but this is where it got tricky because the later at night it got, suddenly everyone in LA and New York popped up and Atlanta and then it kept going. So it ended up being sort of in many different places and some European countries, you know, like Italy and Spain. But in terms of what I learned, I'm trying to think of the main, I think it's like most things, everything ends up being similar. It's like when you hold auditions and you have 20 actors and you end up wanting people to either be incredibly amazing or really terrible because they're the ones you remember. You know, and I think it's almost better to be terrible than it is to just be middling in the middle, not trying something. I think actually the main thing is you see people trying extremely hard on their show reels. They're trying really hard as in the sense of like, this is my breakup scene. I'm going to show how angry I can be and how interesting my eyes can be. And, and obviously those show reels never work. And by the way, when I say that, I'm talking about when people have shot scenes from scratch, for example, with show reel companies, you often see the actors almost knowing that they've paid a bunch of money for their reels. They want to prove themselves. And obviously that's not really real acting. That's not being in the moment. Mm-hmm. So the main thing I learned is just 
It's just like when you guys, you know, you watch a movie, you watch a TV show. When you see an actor, you instantly in your head say, oh, I like that guy. Mm. Or you go, hmm, what was, what was he doing? That was strange. And it's the same with a show reel, and you just want to see something real. And it really jumped out at me. When you see someone have the boldness to start their show reel with them just glancing out the window or them taking a breath before they say a line in a really sort of subtle, down-to-earth way, like those were more memorable than someone trying to do something memorable you know when we have class at the Prague film school i teach acting at the Prague film school and a lot of those acting students used bits of the student films that they were in mm. as showreel material yeah. which is problematic because a lot of the more dramatic moments are so huge yeah. like screaming crying or being just crazy or things like that and i just i'm like can you guys just have a conversation yeah. and be human you know so i think that it's real tricky because you as an actor you don't really know where the line is like is this too boring i don't know where's the line absolutely it's funny after that article i got a few emails from quite sort of well-established actors there was one guy in particular who said something along the lines of, you know, I've always wanted to like know someone who is the showreel person, but as an actor, you don't really often find that person because you're just kind of putting all your material together and talking to your agent, talking to a friend and trying to whack it together. And I think that's what I found from the article and from doing the Twitter stuff is that actually, whilst there are people saying I'm a showreel editing company and you can pay me to edit, there's not people really talking about why they choose the material they choose or why a piece of material works. So I felt like the reason those things got shared is because people are craving that knowledge a bit, you know? In your experience with editing, do you find that it's common that actors are challenged in determining which material to choose? Yeah, I think if you're editing your own material, it's very tricky because often an actor, you know, like when any of us look in the mirror, if we don't like a certain angle or we don't like some part of their face or something or a voice sounded croaky when you, you know, people get very self-critical. Or an, another thing, an actor will hold on to some, you know, they did a short film that they loved and it won an award six years ago and they're just in love with it, but it doesn't really serve a purpose on a showreel anymore. It's hard for that actor to have the guts to kick out something that's not needed anymore. And also, you know, sometimes the very best acting, the actor feels, in my experience, like they feel vulnerable watching their best acting. Because mm. I feel like when it's real, when they really nail it, there is a, sometimes a shyness around it or a, I don't know, like, you know, there's been so many times when I've edited a reel and I've said, this bit here you must keep in. This must start your reel. And it's often the bit the actor wants to kick out. But I feel <laughs> like their thinking is compromised because they're looking at themselves. It's like picking your own Tinder profile pics. You're not the best judge, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. One of the points that you make in the book that you'll be bringing out shortly, and thank you for allowing us to preview it. Well, thanks for taking it. Very grateful for that. Yeah. You talk about authenticity and the need for an actor's showreel to really give a sense of who that actor is. And yeah. you acknowledge in the writing that it's difficult to write about with specificity because it's so unique. But I'm sure you've given this a great deal of thought. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's so connected to, to what you're describing in terms of the choice of the material and also an actor's ability to understand how to market themselves beyond the real. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, as I did say in the book, it is very tricky. The best way I would describe it is, you know, there's four of us here having a conversation and we, I think, naturally get a sense of each other's character and personality and you just get a sense of someone's essence. You know, seeing a picture of you guys or a showreel, I would expect to see an element of that essence And it's such an esoteric thing. And it's kind of the one part of the book where I sort of said, like, you have to define this for yourself. For example, talking about getting the book cover designed for the book that we're talking about, I tried all these different people to do a design of it. And there's websites like Fiverr.com where you pay someone $5 and they cook up a book cover. And, (laughs) you know, you realize that the people that are very good at designing get a sense of who you are, not just through looking at my website and what fonts I use, but they just get to know me a bit. They get a sense of the book and the cover that I'm waiting on the final one right now, it's the creator. She just got me and that book cover I can look at it and say that is a piece of me that looks like me rather than if some other show guy wrote a book and I think it's just the same with acting you you feel it when you do a role I think you know like what Brian was saying at the beginning about taking a role I think sometimes you do a job because you need the money and it's offered but you're not sure you want to do it you don't like the director the script's weird it's not really you but there's something else you do that you really have a feeling for that just feels like a part of you on your journey you've done the toughest question at the beginning <laughs> but that's why we're here that's my essence I'm going to give it to you right out of the gate <laughs> That's the vagabond actor's promise. We asked the tough question. No, it's good. It's good. Well, I think that the idea of authenticity in casting and in acting is important to the three of us as teachers because that's part of what we, with our own unique approaches, are trying to help an actor carve out. Hmm. Uh, We're helping them to discover authentic moments on stage, on camera, within themselves and between themselves and their partners. And when you see it, when it opens up and it's there before you, it's the thing that you go, there you go. You've got it right now. How does it feel? Where are you? Right. Like that's what we're always trying to lead them to ultimately. And I am surprised when I see show reels, how often I feel that the actors are quite far away from what I believe their authentic energy and essence really is. And sometimes it's maybe because they don't feel that they have the material Mm -hmm. that's been produced that really represents who they are. And sometimes it just may be poor choices. Definitely. I've sort of said something to some actors before when I'm writing showreel scenes for them, when they ask a question like, well, how do you write uniquely for me? Or how does it suit my casting? And one of the things I say is for any actor I meet, I can write a scene where they play a murderer. But a good scene is not where an actor acts like what they think a murderer would act like. How Al Pacino would murder someone is different to how Jennifer Lawrence would murder someone. It's different to how when it's personalized and when it's real, you get a sense of the person's essence, you know? I mean, that's a real argument to going to a bespoke showreel creator mm. who can actually write scenes that are worthy of the actor. Because so many of us 
are making up careers out of uh, these functionary characters or these these bit part characters mm-hmm. where you can put a bit part on your reel if that's all you have. I mean, it's better mm-hmm. than putting theater on your reel, but it's not really going to show you really move the scene. And that and that's what you really want to see in a, in a show reel scene is you want to see that actor being the driving force of the scene. And so if you don't have that and all you're playing is these small characters in these larger projects, then it might be worth it to go to someone like yourself, Dan, and say, hey, can we work up a few scenes that can show what I can do? Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky one. My friend Steve, who's an American actor in his 50s, he sort of pops up in three or four TV shows, movies, pretty much every year, and they're quite well-known things. And he has great showreel material. But his instinct has been, and it's mine as well, that he'll also come in and do scenes with me And often even just one of those scenes in between the TV and film material, it kind of anchors his reel a little bit. It helps that thing we're talking about of authenticity. It just helps show a human side of him that you don't necessarily see when he pops up in a TV show with a gun being a cop for 20 seconds. Do you know what I mean? And that's hard. You know, I've worked with a lot of actors who they do scenes with me. They get their first few TV film credits and naturally I think I'd be the same I'm like right I don't need that original material anymore I need all my tv credits I've done really well but then they get stuck after that because their reels are just these pieces of these random tv things that are like these characters that pop up for one scene and they don't really show them doing anything interesting they're just you know handing a cup of coffee to Ricky Gervais or they're uh, in a scene where they're a receptionist when Steve Coogan walks in I'm just thinking of British actors isn't well, it's it? so tempting to do that it is I know but I totally get it and I would be the same if I was an actor I'd be like oh my god I've worked with Tom Hanks that has to be the beginning of the show reel right when in reality it might not be Maybe it shouldn't be, you know? Hey, can I ask you, Dan, do you remember my showreel? I don't know. You probably have seen so many hundreds. You probably... not, I wish I had watched it again before uh, um, this podcast, but no, I don't currently remember at this moment. I actually have on my showreel kind of what you're talking about. Right. Most of the things that I have are me and a famous person. Yeah. Not to toot my own horn, but I've cultivated this stuff Mm. so that it's that. But the scene that I think has the most impact, and I think the scene where I'm doing the best acting, Mm. is the scene where I was the scene partner for someone who produced his own seven-minute movie so that he could have material for his showreel. Mm. Can I ask, what did I say to you when I gave you feedback? Okay, and this is another thing that we should talk about, and it's definitely in the book, and it's something that I didn't even think about. Mm. You said, I don't know which one is you. Yeah, such a common thing. It's like, for example, if people on Twitter say they send their showreel to a casting director or someone, a filmmaker is looking for actors, you see the Twitter headshot, you don't really look at it. You click on their video link and then you see two guys in a kitchen talking you have no idea often which one's which yeah that's what it was and you know the first scene that i put on there was me and jared harris so i was like oh of course you know who that is right but no i mean it and i didn't even have any scenes with women that i could use gary do you have any questions by the way because we're kind of dominating your no it's all really pertinent stuff i mean Maybe just a follow-on from the sort of authenticity question, getting into types, Mm. actors, 
recognizing their types and they have to be honest about that and a lot of the time they can be blinded to it or prejudiced not for their own fault but you know habitual thinking and their own self-image and and what they'd like to be and how they'd like to be seen and all that stuff comes into it and can often really cloud the issue so you know you talk about it in your book again and incidentally what is your book called um how to build a great acting showreel well, it does what it says on the tin. You know, you're talking about which actor are you in the scene. You know exactly what that book's about. That's a great title. <laughs> um, so you pick this up in your book. It's part of one of your chapters about getting actors to be honest about their type. So do you have any sort of criteria that you might want to give out a little bit to our listeners without them not needing to buy your book? No, absolutely. First of all, like when I meet an actor, if I'm going to write a scene for them or a bunch of scenes, the first thing I always ask is, what's your perception of what are you good at? What suits you? What doesn't suit you? And I always am interested to hear what they say. And, you know, the worst answer you can hear an actor say is, you know, I actually, I can do most things. Like there are, you know, actors feel that they can do everything. And I think it's in the, over the blog or in the book. Again, I say something like, Okay, Al Pacino can do comedy and Jim Carrey can do comedy, but Jim Carrey can't do an Al Pacino role and Al Pacino can't do a Jim Carrey role. Um, the point being like we are all different. So I first of all, you just try and get a sense of a person's essence and how they perceive themselves. And then I'll, I'll often be quite blunt just with my feelings of saying like in talking to you for five minutes, I can really see how you could play You know, I had a meeting with someone on Zoom this morning and I could just see how if I was to write her a scene as a nurse or a therapist, she would just nail it instantly. I could just see from talking to her for two minutes. I could just tell that I, if I was to write her a really vulnerable character who doesn't really have any agency, who just doesn't know how to defend her. So I just didn't feel that that would suit her. Yeah. But what I do try and do when I write the scenes and I encourage actors, if they're going to create their own scenes or with a company, because you can be both things. You can be a strong and a weak character. You can do both. But I really find that most of the time an actor is better playing a strong character who we then see a moment of weakness or they're better at playing a weaker, more vulnerable character who's called on to show a bit of strength. You know, so just even clicking through Brian's reel without the sound on, I instantly think, okay, yeah, this guy could be a cop, he could be a politician. Okay, maybe I'd write him a scene where he's a politician and someone's found some dodgy email or some text he sent to a woman and his career's <laughs> going to come crashing down. That, I can see that. I can see that. But Total time yeah. There you go. But that's what I get from the real. And that's not a bad thing. Like Brian might think, geez, everyone, that's the role I always get. But that's a perception that comes from looking at material. And it's a casting director is going to have a very similar response. And they're going to think, right, great. He can do that. I'll get him in this role. Just to add to the sort of casting type thing, I, especially when I'm doing a few scenes for someone, I often say to them, like, even if they're really tired, they're like, I always get cast as the mum. I always get cast as the teen druggy, whatever it is. I think it's like, if that's how people perceive you, first of all, great. Let's do a scene that ticks that box and maybe does something interesting. If it is, you always get cast as the mum. Let's do a scene with the mum who's tired of being a mum and wants to start her art career or something. Like, let's dig into it in one of the scenes. And then we're free in the other scenes to find those different sides of you. But I think that if you completely ignore what you're strong at, you're just making it far harder 
harder for yourself, especially early on. And also, it astounds me how many actors aren't aware of their socioeconomic group and how they fit into all of that, which, of course, they can play out of it. Anyone can put an accent on if they're diligent enough and can work at it and do it. But it's like, start from what's there and really play that fully. And from there, you can then grow out from it and play lots of different roles. Absolutely. I mean, I meet actors sometimes and they look and sound like, let's say, Hugh Grant. And they're talking like Hugh Grant. They're very well-spoken, you know. And then they're saying, I really want to play the the sort of drug dealing in the streets, kind of like... Cockney. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a Cockney geezer, you know. And I'm like, it's like a fantasy for them of what they want to do. But it's, you know, you have to start with who you really are. Like if Hugh Grant had demanded for the first 15 years of his career that he play the drug dealer on the corner of the street i don't think he would have got that work i could be wrong you can't ignore how people perceive you you know and i think i also interviewed on my blog i interviewed a casting director called chase paris who has cast ozark and stranger things and i asked him a question about casting types and his answer was very blunt he was very much like if i need a cop i'm gonna watch a show real and i need to see that you can be a cop and if you can be a cop i'll put you in the show and it's that black and white yeah. And if you can be a cop, why would you deny yourself the ability to get all of those roles, you know? Right. You know, it's like if you are casting for or you're doing a scene for your showreel where you are the owner of a corporate company, you know, an Alan Sugar type or something like that, then you've got to have the source to back it up. That's why I often find actors take this idea, which you mentioned earlier, of I can play anything. And in training, they get to do that by and large. But then, you know, they come out and it's like, okay, well, now there's the commercial side of it that you really have to get to grips with. So what you're talking about really is there's like a kind of socioeconomic group there, but also the quality that they give up. When you talk about essence, mm. it is tricky in the sense of, oh, you see someone on screen or you'll see someone walk through the door, you'll see someone on a showreel and you go, yeah, I get them. Mm. What is that? Is it their qualities, their overriding quality, their persona? I mean, can you give us some kind of example? Like a few years ago, I had a show meeting with a, a young actress who was, I guess, about 21, and she was very nervous. Like when she met me, it was like a big deal to her. She was getting a showreel, and she was talking a million miles an hour, and she kept talking about how she's really confident and she's going to do all these big roles, and like she was just like a fireball of energy. She was talking about confidence, but my perception was... At two o'clock in the morning when she's sitting on her own and she's thinking she's not as confident as she's making herself out to be. So I wrote her a scene that was someone going to a job interview, but they're completely underprepared. They have a complete, it was a comedy scene, but it captured not the essence that she meant to present to me, but the essence that I felt was the real her. And when she read the scene, she was like, oh, my God, this is exactly me. How did you know this was me? Did I tell you about the time when my job interview messed up? And I'm like, no, I just, it was just a lucky guess, you know. But it was just an essence that I haven't seen her in a few years. I don't know if she still carries that essence now. My guess is she would do. But it just ticked, you know, like a kind of Ali McBill kind of character, for those of you who remember that. Mm. Just this kind of like wacky, crazy in a situation and it just really suited who she was and it was a great scene and again it's like 
okay, if I was going to write lawyer scenes for six different actors, anyone above a certain age, you know, once they're like whatever the age of a lawyer is going to be into their 20s, so anyone can be a lawyer. So on the one hand, a casting type, you do have like this traditional, okay, what does a lawyer look like? They look like a guy from Suits. Okay, maybe. But it can also be a 25-year-old who's young and naive and nervous, but maybe their casting type would be young, naive, nervous lawyer. Or maybe it would be a, I don't know, a Jesse Eisenberg type character, the wonder kid who comes in, thinks they know everything, talk a million miles an hour. You know, when you meet someone, I think even if someone says to me, Dan, I have to play evil characters, I'm good at evil characters, that doesn't mean I write a cliche Silence of the Lambs evil character. It means, okay, I've just met this guy, Gary. He wants evil scenes. What would Gary look like? as an evil person. I'm going to write those scenes. What I perceive from meeting Gary, okay, I think he'd be the evil guy who's quite knowledgeable. Maybe the character's an acting coach who's killed 18 people. You know, you just kind of try and marry it with the person you've met so that it captures their essence. Guys, there's a TV series there. I know. We'll talk afterwards, Gary, and we'll get the... Right? Yeah. Do actors um, ever push back on you with the suggestions? Is it do you sometimes think that you hit too close to home on the scene suggestions? Yeah, I mean it, there's different kinds of pushback. I think now as well, I'm at a stage with what I do where if an actor completely disagrees with how I perceive them or how I write scenes for them, then I'm not the guy to be writing their show reel. Like that really strong pushback of like, no, I totally understand. I don't think my writing suits you. Maybe go to those other guys. So that's that's rare, but that happens. Um, but I think more realistically, sometimes you do get a certain pushback. I'll tell you quite a funny one. Um, my friend Bridget, she's a friend now, but when I first met her, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or something, we had a meeting about writing some scenes for her. And she told me about how she had been on Match.com and done all this dating stuff. And she wanted to do comedic dating scenes or at least one of them. And literally, as she left my office and headed home, I had an idea for a scene. I wrote the scene and I sent it to her before she even got home from the meeting. And it freaked her out and she read it. I think she showed it to her boyfriend. I was like, this guy is just, what's he done? He's taken my life. This is not appropriate. Like, <laughs> But a few days went by and then she's like, Dan, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. The concept of the scene was that this woman had just signed up to Match.com and had paid whatever it cost, I don't know, £85 for three months or something. But she meets the love of her life on her first date. But then she starts to think about the economics of it. And she says to the guy, like, I do think you're the love of my life. However, I've just spent £85 on this site and you're the first guy I met. I need to meet other people, not because I might love them. I love you, but I spent 85 pounds. So I need to date more. They know that was the sort of joke. Um, and, you know, we did this scene and she ended up loving the scene and it got her a bunch of work playing those kinds of characters. And it was one of those scenes that actually stayed on her reel for way more years than it should have done based on how old it was. And it was only last year she came back to me to write a new comedy scene for her. Mm -hmm. And it was tough because that scene, for all those things we're talking about, essence and casting type, it just clicked. And we really struggled for ages to find an idea that could replace it and finally we did and we did something else but yeah that's a good example of someone pushing back and being like oh my god this is too personal he's writing about dating but it just totally you know nailed what her casting was 
That's a great story. I love that. Do you think, Dan, that almost every actor should at least entertain the idea of having some professional create a scene for them to put on their showreel? Um, I would definitely say entertain it. Like, why would you not? If you have the resources to pay someone to do it. How much does it cost, roughly? It varies. So in the UK, a single scene that I write, direct and edit is £300. That's what I charge in the UK. But there are guys that charge double that. And there's guys that charge £50. So it's a complete... And whoever you feel will get you. I mean, because I would imagine that certain people, like you said, if you're working with someone and you're trying to capture their essence Hmm. and bring that to the fore so that someone who's like, listen, if I want to cast a cop, I'm going to look for a cop in the showreel. If I can see it, I'll cast a cop. You know, that's not showing a lot of imagination, probably for good reason, because it's a lot of work to watch someone and imagine something else. But you know, if you're looking basically to have someone divine who you are and bring that to the fore yeah. in a way that's entertaining, I mean, that's that's a pretty, talk about match.com, that's got to be a pretty specific match. Absolutely. But here's, I think the important thing and the bit of hesitation for me, like when you say, should you, you know, there's a lot of filmmakers who maybe haven't had some work for a few months and they think, I'm going to start doing showreels. And it's like a way of making a quick buck. And it's like, yeah, sure, I can do your cop scene. You know, you really have to do your research and look into the examples of the filmmaker and you're bound to know an actor who's used the person and ask the difficult questions of like, what was the experience like? How personalized was the writing? You know, there are companies that will just reuse the same scripts or they'll just take, I don't know, scenes from The Good Wife and film them or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that you want to make sure, like I feel like with what I do, there's kind of a track record of actors where I can say this actor did this and then they were cast in this or this casting director says this about these showreels. And that comes from many years of doing it. You know, just don't go with the first person on Twitter who says, I'll do a showreel scene for 50 pounds. You know, like it might be if you've got the right short films, maybe you don't need a showreel scene done for you. But I think when it's done right, like we're talking about, it can be a great, not even a shortcut. I think it's about when you send your showreel to a casting director, you want to feel confident. You don't want to feel embarrassed. So if you can find someone who can create a scene that you're proud of that will speak for you, that you will happily say to a casting director or agent or filmmaker, these are my scenes, then that's Mm. absolutely worth creating. And in terms of mixing the quality of what you would do with something that is broadcast quality, it, it mixes pretty well. I think it does. I think the difference is that my scenes, they look really good, but they don't have 10 extras out of focus in the background and there's no helicopters. The production value is less, but (laughs) it doesn't. Yeah, I think it works. I mean, most showreel companies now, you know, they shoot on really good cameras and get good locations. I think it's just that for me, a good showreel scene feels like a good indie film or it feels like if you watch a show on TV and there's two characters in a kitchen having a conversation, I'd like to think that that doesn't look too different to the scene that I shot in a similar setup. Funnily enough, I did see a showreel company. Someone sent me a link to their unique selling point was we will have extras in the background of your scene. You know, a showreel is all about having you in close up, being a real character, having a real moment and us believing what we're seeing. So the gap between a showreel scene when done well and a big project shouldn't be that different at all. In your book, you talk about the difference between shooting even a scene that's written specifically for the showreel Mm. and making decisions when you're editing. 
Hmm. When you shoot those scenes, do you shoot, what kind of coverage do you shoot? Do you shoot uh, just the person who's paid you, obviously, and and maybe a, uh, like a more, a wider shot, like a two shot or something like that? I shoot it the same way as if I was doing a short film, really, you know? You would shoot the partner's coverage as well? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that, you know, you want this to look and feel like it's from a project on TV. So you, first of all, like even the paying client, not everything they do is going to be perfect. So the more coverage right. i've got the more i've got to play with the more options i have come the edit i would say that if i was shooting that scene for a short film and i'm shooting it for a showreel they would be more or less similar but with a showreel i edge the camera or at least the edit more towards the paying client but not as much as you think it's not like the, the camera's on that person 90 percent of the time it's more like it's on them 65 percent of the time Mm-hmm. You know, because I think you're still using the language of film and of storytelling and it's all part of it, you know. So when I get a finished project that I'm in, that I'm going to use that scene for my showreel. My, yeah. So my goal when I edit it down, because I, I do it myself, hmm. is I will excerpt the scene from the project. So that might be a, a minute or two minute or three minute scene. Hmm. And then I'm aiming for three scenes in my showreel, each of them around 30 seconds. Yeah. Because I know that after a minute and a half, I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here. Sure. I don't care how good it is. And so what I end up doing is I try to use the edit that is in the finished product to cut from myself to myself if I can. And basically have cut almost all of the other person out. Right. Not completely, but enough so that it's 80, 20% me. Right. First of all, does that sound kosher to you? And second of all, when you edit a scene for a showreel and you give it to the client, would you expect them to also kind of cut down the scene or how big are the scenes that you're giving them? So first of all, like when I'm creating a scene for someone, I'll write a, like a two-page script. It's like a couple of pages. And when we film it and I edit it, that scene in the edit will be anywhere from 30 seconds to, it could be a slow burner that's two minutes. I kind of try and make the scene with a certain kind of integrity as in like, I'm making this scene for the scene's sake. And then I'll think about the editing. So I feel like those scenes could be anything from, yeah, 30 seconds, minute and a half, something like that. I think we're maybe talking about a couple of different things. I think if you're editing something from a TV show that you've been in, I think the people watching your reel are very smart and they know the kind of role that you've been in. So if I watch Ozark, I know the main characters. If I see you playing a cop in Ozark, I'm like, okay, cool. He was he was on Ozark for a day and he had a few lines. So if an actor tries to edit it and manipulate it so much that Jason Bateman is not on screen at all and it's all on you, it could backfire because you're like, this is feels weird why is jason bateman not there he's the so i feel like there's a balancing act between obviously it's your show rule you're here to show you but you're showing a casting director or whoever's watching here's how i operated within these projects so yes you want to swerve it towards you but you don't it to look like you're trying to make it seem like you're the lead in all of these things mm-hmm. because it just won't feel it won't feel right yeah you know? Okay. Um, okay, that's fair. Yeah. Can we talk about comedy? I personally think that many showreels lack comedy, and we could all use a lot more laughs, especially these days. 
and maybe get second shrift from actors as they assess the material that they think is worthwhile. They think they need the screaming scene rather than the light, lovely scene. Yeah. What's your take on it? And do you ever find yourself writing comedy scenes just because it doesn't exist in the real already and you feel like it's a color they need to reach or is it born out of what you think the natural essence is as opposed to how they get cast maybe because of a look? I mean, how does it fit into your scheme of things as you are looking at the material from your clients? That's a great question. First of all, for me, like I'm always looking for a way to get comedy into a show. In fact, I think that sort of one of my more unique sort of selling points over the years has been that like if you were to look at the short films that I've made over the years, they tend to veer towards lighter comedic material. That's sort of my natural inclination. You know, like if you go to a film festival, like a small town film festival, you watch a bunch of short films, they're mostly very depressing black and white serious films and then my sort of comedic things would pop up and be a bit of fun so that's that's always been something that's in me and i think that with a reel a weird thing happens that if you watch someone's show reel and they play a murderer then they play a rapist and then they play a drug dealer who uh stabs people (laughs) you kind of come the end of the reel even though you know it's acting there's a little part of you that's like geez this guy's gonna be tough to work with Oh, this woman seems tricky. You know what I mean? Like there's, it does, it is good to have something light in there that just brings an energy to it. The tricky thing is that I think comedy is the hardest thing to do. You know, when I write a scene for someone and it's a drama and, you know, the scene is, okay, you're going to be speaking to your mother for the first time in 10 years and you need to tell her why she ruined your life. You know, an actor can really grasp what that is and what they need to do. Um, when you give them the the comedic scene, which is, okay, you found the love of your life, but you want to get on Match.com to get your money's worth, it takes a real skill to do it. Mm-hmm. Say if I work with a, a bunch of new graduates who are, like I did some showreels with some drama schools in recent years, and we kind of did it so we did like a dramatic scene and a lighter scene for them. And the comedic scenes, you tend to find one or two actors who have just got a natural talent for it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe four or five others where I get some comedy from the editing and from making the scene work if I've written it right. And for others, like they're more suited to drama. For sure, if you want something lighter in your reel, if you're not confident with comedy, then maybe it's romance, you know, like like a romantic kind mm-hmm. of flirty connection thing that shows that you're a nice person. Like maybe that can show an essence rather than, this scene needs to be funny. But yeah, comedy for sure. You know, on average, if I'm doing a three scene showreel, I will for sure try and get something comedic in there if the actor wants to. I mean, a lot of the time an actor will say, I'm not confident with comedy. I don't really know if I should be doing it. Then I will not force it. Thank you. Yeah. Another thing you mentioned in your book, being an advocate of guerrilla filmmaking. Mm. Because, you, you know, you mentioned some things on how to go about it, but sort of seeing as we're talking here and it's an extension of your work, mm. you know, you're a filmmaker as well as quality showreels. Talk about why you're an advocate of guerrilla filmmaking and what inspiring things can you plant in people's minds to sort of get them off their ass and create for themselves? Because we talk about it a lot here as one thing to feed your acting, to continue to be creative. So any insights on that? For sure. One thing I noticed right when I started out making films was that you could go to a film festival, say you watch 10 short films, 
And I realized that there could be a film that was funded by, you know, the BBC or something, and it had a £50,000 budget, and it would not necessarily be any better than the film that a woman made for $5 with just her and her dog in it. Like there, a budget doesn't mean anything to do with quality. And I certainly a pattern within me of filmmaking is if you put two projects in front of me, one was, damn, we think you could be a really good director for this film or we've got this idea and we're going to try and get funding. We're going to get some funding from here and there. And then maybe a year from now we can make it and we're all going to get paid and blah, 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 blah. But if there's another film and you say, Dan, what are you doing tonight? Because we've got this house free and it could be a really cool horror location. Like, have you got a script you could just film in a house? Do you want to use this house? Like, that just gets me going. That just makes me think, right, okay, let's make a film. Let's make a film tonight. It's been hard during COVID. Um, but generally for me, what excites me, and it goes back to like the Twitter thing we talked about at the beginning. Um, at the beginning of last year, I was doing a lot of things where I would just put a script on Twitter and say, I wrote this thing, it's comedy, who wants to film themselves doing it? Or I would be like, okay, guys, who wants to write a short film? I'm going to do a workshop today and you're going to write your short film in four hours. And it's just my energy. I think it's a, an energy that a lot of people have, this want to be creative right now. And the thing that stops people is a fear of, oh, but we're going to need... You know, like if you decided right now, if we decided together, right, we need to make a short film and it needs a Ferrari. Now, I don't know anyone who's got a Ferrari. I don't have know people that have that kind of wealth. But I bet if we went on Twitter or Facebook and said, we're making a short film, it's a comedy and this is this and this, we need a Ferrari. Who can get us? We need one shot in a Ferrari. I think we'd find someone let us film in their car. That's just what I respond to. And I think a lot of people do. But there's fears around, oh, the film won't be good enough. The film's going to suck. But I promise you, your film will suck just as bad if you had a million pound budget. If you're going to make something like, I encourage you to do the cheap version because you'll have a lot of fun. You'll make friends and, you know, you'll get it in a film festival somewhere and have the time of your life. So... Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, artists sketch and out of those sketches, I mean, Picasso, some of his sketches are like, mm -hmm. you know, mind blowing. And he's just sort of going, I've got this idea and I'm working it out or I'm just going to, I've got this fancy and I'm going to just put that down. And, and it's like, you know, you can aim for the marathon, but there's also little sprints you can do to maybe train you for when that marathon happens or just to have little short spurts to mix it up a bit. But it sounds like you're a bit of an improviser as well. It sounds like you like to improvise. It's funny because I'm very much a writer and I love the written word and I love scripts. I think there's an improvisational nature to how I do the work, but nine times out of 10, it's quite well scripted. But there's yeah, improvisation in terms of the spontaneity of it. Yeah. But even the writing of the book was me thinking, right, there's another lockdown. I've just had to cancel a short film I wanted to make and a documentary I was going to make that's been postponed. And I was just frustrated. And I've always toyed with the idea of writing a book. And I didn't really have the guts right now to delve into a novel. And I was thinking, well, what do I know about? I know about showreels. And I was come to this awareness in recent months through the Twitter stuff that my voice was useful and sort of needed in the industry. And it sort of gave me the confidence to think, okay, I'm going to write, you know, as you guys have read it, it's not the 
longest book in the world, but I'd like to think there's enough meat there on a subject that's important to people that I, you know, I've got no idea to write a book, but I just thought I'd wing it. And once it's released, I'll soon find out if it's valued or not. But for me, that's a creative endeavor. You know, you do something, you try it. And if it sucks, you, you do another one. Yeah, better out than in, you know. <laughs> it's like have an idea, give it birth, and that's creation. See what happens to it, you know. Absolutely. Great stuff. That sounds fantastic. I think, Dan, it's been so great having you on to talk about showreels. And I think what you were just talking about in terms of it's not exactly confidence and it's not exactly a kind of fuck it attitude, let's just go do it. But it's this willingness to put a bunch of stuff out there that is low cost and not just in terms of financial cost, but in terms of psychic cost. Yeah. You know, you're not going to spend a lot of time agonizing over whether you should go and film in the haunted house or not, or, yeah. or even whether you should or shouldn't write a book and how it should be structured and all all of that stuff. You just kind of like, let's do it. Let's get it out there. You know, and as I was reading the book, I thought this is going to be one of those books that you're going to return to it. It's a book that if you have a question about what you should do with your showreel or how you should go about shooting your own, you know, you have great suggestions in it about taking even self-tape scenes and adjusting them into showreel scenes. For sure. Like, I think that's something that is incredibly useful for actors. And it's not a book where... I don't know, there's some acting books or there's some process books where you get halfway through and you're like, well, this isn't giving me anything. Yeah. Can I tell you one like little anecdote that feeds into showreels and being spur of the moment creative? This segment of the book about shooting a showreel scene by yourself, that came just before the lockdowns were happening. I was actually in America, my, my girlfriend's American, and I was over there. This is just before COVID kicked off. And I was sitting in a waiting room, just catching up with work and emails. And I decided spur of the moment on Twitter, I was like, okay, I need 10 actors who don't have any showroom material. And we're going to create something today. I'm going to give you scenes and you're going to do them. And it was something that literally was made up on the spot as an experiment. And I gave them scenes that were all characters that film themselves and they're like, oh, the world's about to end and I need to tell so-and-so I love them. Or there were scenes that were like, I have government secrets and I'm just filming this to prove whatever. And we did the scenes and put them out there and it was a lot of fun. Anyway, then all of a sudden, flew back home, COVID happens, we're all locked down. And suddenly those scenes you know, were spread around a bit. Some actors were asking me about them and something that was just an experiment became useful. And then a drama school in the UK, Art said, got in touch and were like, we were about to do a showcase, but we're in lockdown. The actors need something. Can you do your showreel thing? So I ended up for 28 actors doing this showreel scene from your own phone with a little record button in the corner, et cetera, et cetera. My point being that that sort of spirit of I'm just going to try an idea because I'm stuck in a waiting room and I need to be creative, that spur of the moment thing led to, I mean, from a business point of view, it led to me getting a paid job with an institute that's well known. But it also, there's just something in creating something because you have a spur of an idea that will always lead, at the very least, it will lead to you thinking, well, that sucked. I'm never going to do it that way again. But if it works well, it leads to you meeting new people, finding new ways to create. 
and new opportunities coming you know that's being creative like you if you just think too much about the rules like oh you need at least five thousand dollars to make a film or to make a show or scene you at least need to get a sony a7s with a 85 millimeter lens if you start telling yourself that Mm -hmm. you're just not going to be creative it kind of goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, right? Mm. Which is like, you take the opportunities that you have, and if you're looking at what you have the right way, you're never at a loss. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it always leads somewhere. It can grow into something really positive and engender more work. Or, as you said, Daniel, which is also just as important, it can make you go, you know what, that's a lesson learned. I ain't going to do that again. And that's something marked off. And that's growth. Mm-hmm. So either way, I even think you could say, well, that thing didn't work the way I thought it was going to be. And it kind of sucked. How can I do that thing, but do it better or improve it the next time I do it? If you can learn that lesson, then that really becomes an iterative process. Absolutely. And I think, you know, although I'm talking like I'm always creative, there's definitely been, I would say, years where I've just not really been doing my own projects. I've found excuses and it's really taken sort of COVID to remind me that like, who cares? I'm not Steven Spielberg. If I make a film and it sucks, like it just means no one views it. It doesn't mean 10 million people are going to think it's a terrible film. It just means that you three are the only guys who'll see it. And then who cares? I'll move on to the next one. Do you know what I mean? That's right. Well, listen, you were mentioning when we were starting that you were binge watching some shows. So what kind of recommendations do you have, Dan, for people out there to watch? That's a very good question. But unfortunately, I feel like my answers are going to (laughs) be, I've recently become addicted to two different things. One, I genuinely believe that some of the most innovative filmmakers right now are like 19-year-olds on YouTube who film themselves climbing buildings and I don't know what they're doing. Like if I see a YouTuber make a video, I feel like they're just far more innovative and engaging than a Netflix filmmaker. There, There's this YouTube channel called The Proper People and it's these two young lads who go all around the world looking at derelict buildings and they'll just walk into a, a warehouse that closed down 20 years ago and they make these little documentaries. But they're so well shot and they're so engaging that I find myself just watching, being pulled into the world of, and just their filming style and their editing style is often better to me than what I'm seeing on TV or on Netflix, you know. And the other thing I unfortunately to say i've just discovered an american show called the first 48 have you heard of this thing yes i haven't yeah. no i don't mm-hmm. the first 48 and it's a documentary that follows police um, homicide squads around america the first 48 hours of a murder and you just follow the police crew trying to solve a murder and i'm just gripped I'm just completely great. And I think it's because, you know, when you watch a Netflix crime series like Making a Murderer, they drag a storyline out for 10 episodes or two seasons. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, it's like really cringy reality TV that just plays to the worst things of murders and crime. But it's so much conflict in real life crammed into 40 minutes that for the last week since I found this on Amazon Prime, I just can't stop watching it. So any other week I'd be talking to you about all these great Netflix shows. But recently I've just been watching these kids on YouTube and the first 48. So whether I'd recommend them, I don't know. But that's where my curiosity has been driven the last week or two. I love it. I love it. Andrea, what about you? What have you been watching that you can recommend to our listeners? Oh, I've been watching Luther with Idris Elba. 
really interesting series. I'm enjoying it very much. There's some dark crimes committed in the course of this, but really great performances. And I like it very much. Great character study. I've also been listening to two of the podcasts that you recommended, Brian, including Script Notes with John August and Craig Mays. Really good stuff. I love it. Mm-hmm. And then I started listening to the Anna Ferris's Unqualified podcast. That's a lot of fun. Yes. She's got some really great guests. Yes. Also, I'm making some progress through Marie Forleo's book called Everything is Figure Outable. I know I've talked about it before, but I keep reviewing. She's got a great chapter also on goal setting. A lot of material and ideas along the lines of our recent discussion, but it's really worthwhile how she puts it together. And then Death to 2020. Have you guys seen this yet? Yeah, I saw that, yeah. (laughs) You have to watch it, Brian. You, as an American, have to watch this thing. It's political. It's, I, I guess you would call it a mockumentary where there are some actors portraying roles and then they are interspersed with real footage from the year that was. And it's hilarious. And also moving because you see how how much crazy we've been through. It's, it's kind of mind blowing, but there's some really fun performances in the middle of it too. Like Lisa Kudrow totally nails this character. Who's like the, the misinformation guru. It's standing in front of the white house. You know, Hmm. I highly recommend it. Uh, death to 2020. Those are my recommendations this week. Great. Gary. Yeah, a friend of mine, Paul Iakovu, who is a British Cypriot who uh, resides in Cyprus now, has um, produced a documentary about Peter Sellers. It's called The Ghost of Peter Sellers. And it's a brilliant documentary and a behind the scenes look at a really fatal production of the unreleased film. It was called Ghost of the Noonday Sun. And it was starring Peter Sellers and it had Spike Milligan and a bunch of others. And it was in the early 70s, I think it was. This is a documentary about the car crash that entailed. Because if you think you know the craziness of Peter Sellers and his madness, then this will tip you over the edge. Because it's he basically made up loads of excuses, said he had cancer, said he had a heart attack in order to get off the film because he wasn't enjoying it. And it's just a really crazy insight into a crazy comedic actor and sort of the knock-on effect it has on everyone else in the production and it was um the director who directed the film that never got made peter medak was really big in the 60s late 60s and 70s he directed things like the ruling class or and the day in the death of joe egg and and the changeling and he was really big and this was meant to be a massive step up working with peter sellers and all these big actors and then peter sellers basically fucked him where can you find it you can find it on the major streaming services so you'll be able to find it on Amazon Prime for sure and maybe Netflix but I would say I think it's I've seen it on Amazon Prime Hmm. but yeah a huge congratulations goes out to Paul for actually putting it all together and producing it fantastic for myself I started to feel like I needed more comedy and wild abandon in my life so (laughs) I don't we all I definitely do. I definitely do. And especially in my ears. So I started from the beginning again, listening to Harmontown, which is Dan Harmon, who wrote Community, and he's the writer of Rick and Morty. And he is a crazy drunk, at least he was during the recordings of Harmontown, just this crazy drunk improv show that is wild and irreverent and vulnerable and just so funny 
so crass. So I started re-listening to Harmontown this past week. So I would recommend yes. that to anyone who needs a little bit of crass, drunken revelry. <laughs> and it's a little nerdy too. So, you know, it's good. It's good for me. Um Dan, thanks so much for joining us this week. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Where can people get in touch with you? We've talked about Twitter, so why don't you let people know your Twitter handle if they don't follow you already? Yeah, it's Daniel Johnson UK, and I think it's Daniel Johnson Films on Instagram. Yeah, website danieljohnsonfilms.co.uk. Great. And are you currently looking for people who are interested in getting showreel scenes filmed now? Or how is that working with looking for clients now? Absolutely. Yeah. If anyone's interested, please just drop me an email or reach out to me on Twitter. And uh, we obviously have to figure out around COVID guidelines as we go. But uh, yeah, always looking to meet new clients. Awesome. And if someone, okay, here's another question. So I was thinking about this for myself, right? So how does it work if someone is not able to actually go to you? Are you able to take clients who maybe want you to write them a scene and then maybe not shoot it? Would you just consider writing the scene for them or do you need to do the whole thing? I'll let you in on a secret that I've never, I've never said out loud on a podcast, but I have a rule for myself, which is in the UK, I will only write scenes if I direct them. But if someone reaches out to me from elsewhere in the world, I'm happy to write for them. That's kind of been my rule. Because in the UK, I feel like, yeah, I want to direct my own material. And that's my sort of unique thing to write and direct. But if you're in America or Mallorca or wherever it may be, then the needs are different. So potentially, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so definitely get in touch with Dan for all of your showreel scene needs. And if you want a great director to direct your film or to write and direct your film. Awesome. And Andrea, how can people get in touch with you? They can find me on Instagram at Andrea Helene three and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And Gary. Yeah, at Gary Condes on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the same, or just, you know, drop me a line, go to my website, garycondes.com, and, you know, ping me off an email for, on the contact page there. That would be uh, great. And look for his courses on his website as well, because you've got courses, your 2021 slate is starting. That is absolutely correct. So I'm launching scene study, casting technique, character work. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them that are starting from next week. Great. And if you want to hear from me and uh, look, I've been posting on Instagram, I've been posting photos of the walks that I've been taking around town. And uh, yes. I've actually gotten better at taking pictures. I've, I've always felt that I was a terrible picture taker, but now that I've started taking them, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing okay. So if you want to look at some <laughs> scenic scenes of Prague in the winter, you can look at my Instagram. It's at Brian Casp on Instagram and on Twitter. I usually post thoughts and and little questions or responses to people. And if you want to follow Vagabond Actors, it's at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. And we love hearing from you guys. And we love that you're being supportive. So thanks very much. And we look forward to talking to you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and keep creative. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Dan, for coming on. And thanks, folks, for Thank listening. You, Dan. Thank you very thanks, much. Everybody.